God and our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and nearest kinsman, redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. So today, we, uh, we are continuing our study in the Ten Words or Ten Commandments. Again, I want us to remember why we're calling them the Ten Words, and I want us to remember why we're studying these. We have a calling, of course, the commission that Jesus gave at His ascension, that we should go out to all nations, right? Proclaiming His good news, discipling them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we'll do some baptizing a little bit later today. But as we're making disciples, as we're baptizing, we're also told that we are to teach them, that is the disciples, to observe all that God has commanded. And so in keeping with that, we are taking a look at what God has commanded in his word so that we can be faithful ourselves as disciples, so that we may teach and instruct others in how to live and observe all that our Lord has commanded us. Again, why do we call this the Ten Words? Because our very personal God spoke these words first to the people of Israel, His covenant people, and we today, the church, are His covenant people. And of course, it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words. Our God, who created the world, who has called us, is speaking to us clearly today through His Word. Again, we see that Yahweh, your God, God speaks this, and in the told Ten Commandments, the word Yahweh, His personal name, shows up eight times. And I know you guys are saying, Pastor Dan, you, got, you are repeating yourself every single week. This is important. You think of another passage when this few of verses where God says his name and he's speaking, and five times he says, Yahweh, your God. He is our personal God. You know, in Psalm 119, 151, we see this, that God draws near to his people, says, You are near, O Yahweh, and all your commandments are truth. We need to remember that. When we come into this place and we worship together, we are drawing near to the call of God, and God is speaking to us. We are worshiping Him, we are taking our prayers and petitions to Him, and we are hearing God's Word. We are submitting ourselves to God's Word, and He is near. And He isn't just a far away, impersonal God, but no, the God that knows us, created us. He is calling us to draw near, and we need to understand that His commandments are truth. This is why we must study and learn. And the first five, we learned that those are all connected to God. Four of them are real clear, but last week we discussed how honor your father and mother is tied to God's established authority and that we should see both in our father and mother not only our biological parents, but those who have preceded us in the covenant people as our father and mother, and we should give them honor. And of course, 
we know that we can't properly understand how to love our neighbor or how to interact with our neighbor without first knowing who God is and what God expects of us. So he reminded us that we're not to bring any God before his face. He prohibited us from making images to making idols or anything that we can try to displace Jesus mediation for us of course we were I, I don't know I found this one very convicting the in the third word we recognize that all Christians carry the name of our God through baptism again we're going to see that here today but we are called to carry his name in a way that doesn't cause others to blaspheme God and of course in honoring the Lord on the Sabbath, we learn that we show our trust, our faith in God by ceasing our labors, by worshiping, by giving tribute in our tithes and offerings to Him, that we trust Him for our strength, our provision, and we rest in His forgiveness, and we are called to bring rest and His peace to others. And we talked a little bit last week simply about how if you take away all the negatives, and we'll be talking about a negative today, that at the very end of all things, when you stop doing the things God says to stop doing, what's left? And it's the positive vision for Israel and, yes, even the church, and that is Sabbath, rest, and peace, and intergenerational respect. Those are the positive things that we are to be considering. Now today, we could have a very short sermon, because after all, you shall not murder. And in fact, in the Hebrew, it's just two words. We'll get to that in just a minute. So I could simply read it and say, let's go home. We need to understand that the second grouping of the ten words of God are all about not assaulting or attacking God's image bearers. That is what he is telling us to do in this second grouping of five. First of all, we learn to worship God, how to do it, and what not to do. And then he calls us and says, Now I have created man in my image, and you are not to assault me by assaulting my image bearers. So again, let's begin the second grouping of the ten words by hearing God's word. Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. The people in the world, including Israel, knew that premeditation, that the premeditation of killing men was wrong and that there was a death penalty applied. We see that when Noah left the ark in Genesis chapter 9, that God restates the dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply, but he establishes the reason that murder is wrong. And of course, this is you know, a quite a distance from Noah to where he's speaking and giving his commandments to his people, his words to his people. Genesis 9, chapter, chapter 9, beginning of verse 1 says this, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, fear, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of earth. And every bird of the air, 
on all that move on the earth and on all of the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For surely, surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of every man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, listen here, for in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth and abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. There's a couple of things happening in this passage, but it is already well known. The people of Israel know this. The peoples of the world know this. Everyone came from Noah and his sons, generationally speaking, and they know this. But he repeats, God repeats the dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply, both as bookends, and in the middle he says, don't take a man's life. But if you do... If you commit murder, if you become a manslayer in this way, your life will be taken. And he says, because all men are made in my image. And then he goes right back and says that we are to be fruitful and multiply, bringing forth abundantly in the earth and multiplying in it. We need to understand that the call to fruitfulness is tied to preserving life. We are not to simply kill and murder and lie in wait to destroy others. All people have value because they are made in the image of God. So the question comes to us, why does God speak to Israel here about these things? Why does he say you shall not murder when they're standing at Sinai that day? Well, here at Sinai, God is constituting Israel, the descendants of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And he's saying, I'm turning you into a nation, into a people together. And when you go out and you establish a nation and cities, he doesn't want it to be a dictatorship, but it is rather a place for growth and maturity. It's a time for us to understand and have expanded truths. You know, when you get nations and cities together, right, there's so much more opportunity for us to violate one another. And if that's not clear to you, ask this question about when you were growing up or if you have kids now and you pile all your kids in the car and you're in a confined space, what do we see happen? There are charges of others violating me, or my space, or the way they looked at me. (laughs) Right? That is the very thing that God knows is going to happen when he puts the people of Israel into the space of the promised land and establishes cities. You see, if you live far apart, the person you do battle with the most is you and God and yourself. But when you're with other people, you're now being sanctified by the people around you. 
And this is all tied to thou shalt not murder. You know, there have been times, truthfully, when coming back to thinking about riding in a car with many others, many children to be exact, there are times we thought our kids would murder one another. And if we're honest, there are probably times where we as parents thought about doing it to our own children. <laughs> I only say all that to help us bring a little levity to a difficult situation. But I want us to understand that the whole point, and if you're the parent in that minivan, or like in our case, we had a 12-passenger van, when you had all your kids in there and you're going somewhere, right, you're really trying to preserve life their lives, and have them not be such a distraction that you pull off to the side of the road and wreck, right? It is about preserving life, not just right now, but to what end? That our children and their children's children may be fruitful and multiply, and not just in having children, but being fruitful in the works that God has called them to. We need to understand that God is placing restraints onto the people of Israel, but the restraints are being placed under the context of being fruitful and multiplying and assisting and guarding others' ability to be fruitful and multiply, growing into maturity and taking dominion. You know, from the very beginning, we are our brother's keeper. When God told Adam to be the keeper of the garden, that word keep actually means to guard. He was to guard the garden. What was he supposed to be doing? Guarding the trees? Perhaps, because he was told to tend them. But he was certainly called to what? Guard Eve. We see that Adam was called to guard. Cain was told to guard his brother. We see that Judah and Reuben... They were responsible for Joseph, and they tried, although they were uh, not really totally faithful to guarding, protecting Joseph. But we need to understand that God is about having us protect one another to guard. We need to understand that what we do with ourselves and our property, even by accident, has consequences, and we are, in fact, responsible to make it right according to God's law. We are stewards. There are certain limits about what we can do. And God teaches that there is punishment for outright wickedness and, in fact, for negligence. God provides grace in the case of negligence and establishes cities of refuge and restitution. Now, all this really matters simply because Yahweh is the life giver. Genesis 1.26 tells us this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. So we see God makes him in his image and talks about dominion right away. Talks about the call of what we are to do. In Genesis 2 verse 7 we say, it says this, And Yahweh God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. 
God gives us the breath of life. All life emanates from him. God establishes life even in the womb. Psalm 22 verse 9 says this, But you are he who took me out of the womb. This is the psalmist speaking to God. You made me trust while, in my mother's while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Psalm 139 tells us this, beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts, and you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance, being yet unformed, and you and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them, that is, none of my days. All of life comes from God. We are to protect God and his image bearers, and that includes in the womb. Now, if we understand that God is the provider of all life, all breath, we need to look at what is being said here. You shall not murder. This word, murder, we can see it as manslayer. It's just two, in the Hebrew, I mentioned before, it's just two words. It's lo and raksa. And lo is a negative. It is not. No, none. In other words, don't do it. And raksa is to murder, to slay, to kill. Both premeditated and accidental. It could be the avenger of death or a slayer. And so what is God saying here? It's important that we look at this. You know, we often evaluate and look for the minimalist way or the most reduced way to address what is being asked of us especially if it's what God requires I want to be able to say that I can check the box well I didn't go out there today and murder anybody you can check that one off the box but you know it's really interesting when you look at this if we want to try to really understand what this word Raksaw means we need to understand this by looking at how he uses the word throughout all of Scripture. And when we look through it, the place where it is most densely talked about is in Numbers 35. It shows up 14 times. And the context is manslaughter. And we're going to make a couple of distinctions here. But the context here is about our responsibility towards our neighbor. That is what manslaughter is, right? It's not that you were hateful. And God's gonna, we're going to make a distinction here in a second between high-handed sins and incidental sins or sins of inadvertency. But it's important that we understand that all of this is in the context about our responsibility, our responsibility towards our neighbor. So what's the difference between a high-handed sin and sins of inadvertency? Well... High-handed sins are you choose to rebel against God. That's a person who lies in wait. Okay? But there's also the sin of inadvertency. That is to say, maybe you culturally learned something and you're deceived. What was the difference between Adam and Eve? Adam was high-handed in his sin. Eve, we know that she was deceived. 
Adam was right there. As a matter of fact, he was using Eve as the test subject. How hateful to say, man, I'm going to let her do this and see what happens, and if she doesn't die right away, I'm going to do it. That was hateful towards his neighbor. Worse yet, when God shows up on the scene, Adam turns into Satan himself, because what does the word Satan mean? Accuser. And what does he do when God shows up? He says, God, well, he accuses God, but he also accuses Eve. That woman you gave me. He's being hateful. High-handed sins are utter rebellion. This is really important, and we can understand this a little bit when we recognize that high-handed sins are for those who have responsibility for others. We are called, if you are responsible for others, to be a restrainer of violence so that others may be fruitful, multiplied, and productive. We see in Leviticus chapter 4, in case you think, well, you're just kind of making this up. Leviticus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Now Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally, against any of the commandments of Yahweh in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bring, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to Yahweh for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish, a sin offering. And this is important. Both the unintentional person, whether it's the leader, because maybe they're deceived, or if it's the person who's been led into believing that something's okay, we need to understand that distinction. Now, it's still sin. They're still wrong, but there's a different way to handle it. In Leviticus chapter 6, there's directions relating to the trespass as a high-handed sin. Leviticus 6.2 says, If a person sins and commits a trespass against Yahweh by lying to his neighbor, and it goes in and it talks about they are sinning against God, they know. They're sinning against God. They're not simply just, you know, some little side thing. No, they know they're in utter rebellion to God. That whole passage shows of, of Leviticus 6 that public repentance and restitution is necessary before atonement can be made. There's a process that God has, but it's much more public. It's much more drastic. It is much more grievous, in fact, for high-handed sins. And there are some high-handed sins that have the death penalty. Now, we want to contrast incidental sin to premeditated murder. Psalm chapter 71, verse 10 says, For my enemies speak against me, and they lay wait for my soul and take counsel together. We see in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 11, If they say, Come and let us lie in wait for blood, let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause, or Proverbs 1.18, and they lay wait for their own blood, they lurk privily for their own lives. And of course we see again in Jeremiah chapter 5, another context of lying in wait. That is premeditated, I'm going out against somebody, that's a high-handed sin. It's not an accident, it wasn't a moment of losing my cool, I planned it, I'm doing this. Now, what does God do? God sets up, when he goes in and he tells the people of Israel these things, he sets up cities of refuge. God establishes 
that those who are to take responsibility are to address if someone dies, if someone is killed. And that person, that avenger of blood, they need to go carry out justice. Now, if you inadvertently killed someone, you were to flee to the city of refuge. And when God sets it up, he starts out with three. And he says, you're going to need, as you grow and establish more cities and there's more people, you're going to need to do more of these. And if you kill someone, go to that city of refuge. And there's a couple of things that happen there. If you go into the city of refuge, you get a trial, they determine that it was an accident, then the avenger of blood lets you be at peace inside the city. Now, there's limits, there's restraints to that. If you flee the city, if you leave the city of refuge, you'll be killed. Now, there's a caveat to that, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But today, for us, in our justice system, the avenger is the police. They bring in, and they chase you down, and they go through the procedure in our justice system. And obviously, our justice system sometimes has breakdowns, right? But the reality is that that is a God-ordained plan and format. And again, God does speak specifically to this. And we see it says that whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in times past. That's going to be important later. We also see, though, that there is a particular prescription about how you determine whether someone is guilty of one or the other. Okay? One witness shall not rise up against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be established. But it's very interesting, too, if you take someone to court or you make a false accusation against someone, whatever justice you were trying to get out of them, you were... You, in turn, if you turned to be lying, if you didn't have your facts straight and they disproved you, you were responsible to pay them. You could even lose your life if you were seeking the death penalty. It makes you think about how important it is to have your facts right. This may be an area, I'm sure it's an area, where we're not doing that well in our own system, right? It's important that we recognize that God creates limits on warfare, limits on killing, limits on these things. In warfare, there's no killing of civilians or useless destruction, especially things that are required for life, like food and water. Thus, we should be preserving life and the ability for people to be fruitful and continuing this in others. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 14, it says this, But the women and the little ones and the livestock and all that is in the city and all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself. And we could talk more about that later, but here's important. And you shall eat the enemy's plunder, which Yahweh your God gives you. There was, there's clear, if you read this passage further, there's clear limitations. There's no rape. You have to make provision for the women and children that survive. And you are not to just go and have violence against them now there is a little bit of a special situation when they first go into the promised land where god just for that time of going into the promised land it isn't that he's trying to displace them and give presents and promises to the people of israel but he has established that the amorites and those living in the land of canaan the canaanites were in unrepentant sin for a long time when god gives the promise to abraham he doesn't allow him to go in at that time 
and excise judgment on the Canaanites. He says, why? why does it, what does he say? God says it's because their sin's not complete. God leaves priests in the land. We see Melchizedek is in the, in the land preaching the gospel. We see that Jethro was in the land preaching the gospel of the living triune God to the people, to the Amorites. And they became so wicked that it was just commonplace to kill other people, to kill their children. And they went unrepentant of it for generations after generation after generation and got worse and worse. And God came in and he placed a particular period of time where he was bringing judgment upon the people in the promised land, the Canaanites. But even in that, they were told they couldn't just go in and destroy everything. Now what about the death penalty? In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 11, it says, But if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, and rises against him, and strikes him mortally so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of the city shall send and bring him from there, and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. Now this is important. So if you try to act like you didn't lie in wait, and you run to the city of refuge, those, those leaders those priests, those judges, they were going to evaluate the situation. And if it, it showed that you did lie in wait, you would be put out of the city of refuge. And verse 13 this is very important. It says, Your eye shall not pity him, that person who's been handed over to the avenger. But you shall put away the guilt of the innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with you. And in Numbers 35, it continues and says, if he pushes him out of hatred or while lying in wait or hurls something at him so that he dies or in enmity he strikes him with his hand so that he dies, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He's a murderer. The avenger of blood shall be put, to, put the murderer to death when he meets him. Now this is really interesting and, and, and bear with me here. Death was always required whether for intentional or unintentional death. You said, wait a minute, that's not what you said. But Deuteronomy chapter 21 says this, and in Deuteronomy 21 the situation is that you find a person who's been killed out in a field. And they've got to go out there and there's all these rules about measuring what's the closest town. It's investigated. And if they cannot figure out who did this thing, it says this, that the elders in Deuteronomy 21, the elders of that city shall bring a heifer down into the valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck in the valley. And again, it tells us that, that they're going to take the blood of that heifer, they're going to put it into the stream so that it washes out of the land. A heifer was given, a sacrifice was given to remove the guilt from the land. But even more than this, we see also, what about the person in the city of refuge? Is there a death required there? Yes, there is. For manslaughter, a death is required. There's limitations even on being stuck in the city of refuge. Because it tells us this in Numbers 35, 25. So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled, and he shall remain there until when? The death of the high priest who was anointed by oil. So they're, they're being in that city of refuge had limitations. You know, remember when I talked about the special situation where the people of Israel go into the land of, of Canaan and bring God's judgment? 
and how there had to be an atonement, a, a, a addressing of this issue of death being brought, being led out so they could go, the people of Israel then could go and be blessed in the land. Because if, if you didn't address, it said that in that Deuteronomy passage, if you didn't address and bring that heifer out for that murder out there, that the land would be cursed. So, so what, what happened? If you go to the very end of the book of Joshua, two things happen. Joshua dies, and before they go out, as they're going out into all the land to settle in, the scriptures tell us that the high priest dies. That special time of addressing and going in, it ended right there. No more, no more bringing judgment willy-nilly out there because it wasn't about them. God was bringing a very specific, measured judgment on the people of Canaan. You know, all of this brings us to the great thing that we see debated today. People struggle sometimes to reconcile Jesus' words to what we see as Old Testament law and Jesus and New Testament requirements. But I want to remind us of this. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, beginning in verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, right? So if you're teaching others, you are high-handed. It's not for you inadvertent. But this shall be called the least of the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying here that he didn't just come to like, okay, the Old Testament's over. You don't draw any truth out of that. You don't have to follow any of the directions there. And, of course, I think if you realize that the whole point was to preserve life, right? God says you couldn't even cut down the fruit-bearing trees in war. You couldn't fill in wells. If you do that, you were sinning because you're stopping life. But Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets by obeying the law. Here's the important part, as it was intended. Jesus, in, in our whole study, when we were looking um, from Advent to Pentecost, right, we saw what Jesus did. Jesus was constantly calling the scribes and the Pharisees and all of the people of Israel to what? To obey the law as it was intended, not all the extra things they stuck on it. They hijacked it to their own belief structure, to their own profit, and not so that others could be fruitful and multiply. As a matter of fact, even worse, the scribes and Pharisees used the law to separate themselves from others, disobeying the command of God to be the priests of Yahweh to all nations. Jesus fulfills the law by acts of mercy, justice, and truth, and finally by dying on the cross for our sins. We need to remember this. What did Jesus say about murder? And we're nearly there, but this is important. It says this. You have heard it said that those of, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, that is an empty-headed person, it's an insult, 
shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. And here's, here's the crutch of it. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. This clarification takes it a bit further and says, it's not just about lying in wait, but we must guard against difficulties in our fellowship and relationships. We must come to forgiveness and restoration of the fellowship. What we're saying here, and what God is trying to teach us, is that we have to guard ourselves because when we allow relationships to become broken, and we don't ask for forgiveness and we don't reconcile, that we are planting seeds of hatred that eventually grow into taking another person's life, being hateful to their destruction. Through forgiveness and restoration of fellowship, we are to bear the burden of reconciliation just like Christ. What did he do? He actually had a right. He was being mistreated, falsely accused, and he had the right to bring judgment down on us all. But instead, he laid aside his right for vengeance and said, I instead am going to lay down my life so that others may benefit. I'm going to preserve life. I'm going to create a situation through laying down my rights of vengeance so that others may be fruitful and multiply and be reconciled to God Almighty and be set back to their original call to be fruitful and multiply in building up the kingdom of heaven. We are too to live in this way. We are not to be angry and hold on to an offense, but turn all such situations into ways to bring peace and justice and hope. Matthew 18 teaches us that the offended or injured one is to set aside their anger and seek reconciliation, first to God and then to each other. And again, to what end? So that others may benefit from being reconciled to God for the purpose of being restored to our created purpose. People of God, this is how God's kingdom comes and we become the guardians of life and thus fulfill the command not to murder. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we give you praise. We thank you for your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not let offenses drive us to holding on to our sin, but rather that we may confess our sin, seek re reconciliation and restoration so that we may obey you and extend fruitfulness in our marriages, in the lives of our children, and the people of God around us in this room and to the very four corners of the earth, that your truth, your gospel may be proclaimed to all nations. In Jesus' name, amen.